Okay, we are in Hebrews chapter 13, so we're starting the last chapter of the book of Hebrews. And after Hebrews, I think we're going to do the book of Genesis, which is a massive book, but we're going to try to tackle it. It'll be several years. For those of you who are freshmen, that will be the last book that we'll do together, probably, because it will take so long. But, uh, uh, but I'm really looking forward to it personally. But let's finish with, with uh, Hebrews chapter 13. So we'll still be in Hebrews for several more weeks. And uh, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1. But let me again remind us what's happening because that's particularly important as we discuss this. There are Jewish believers, people who are Jews, ethnically Jews that receive Jesus as the Messiah, that are living in Judea, the regions around Jerusalem. They are under great persecution. It's about 60, between 66 and 68 uh, uh, B.C., I'm sorry, A.D., 66-68 A.D., and they're under great persecution to go back into Judaism. The Jews are putting them under great pressure. And it is in the midst of that persecution that the writer of the book of Hebrews is writing to them and telling them, you can't go back into Judaism because if you do, you're going to die. You're not going to die spiritually, but you're going to die physically because you're going to end up in Jerusalem, you're going to end up in Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is going to be wiped out really soon. And that onslaught of Jerusalem is about to take place. It actually uh, uh, took place, and it was ultimately destroyed in, in uh, 70 A.D. And, and so, so that's what's going on in this context. Now, it's in that context that he's warning them. He gets to the last part of his letter. So we're looking at the last part of the letter that is written to people who are being deeply persecuted. And he's encouraging them to not fall back into Judaism because they're going to end up dying. He says, you don't have that option. You've got to walk with Christ. And so I want you to view this in this way. This is like a father speaking to his son who is 18 years old and about to go off to war. What are the last things that a father would tell his son, what's the last words of encouragement that you could give him before he's going to go off to war? And think about that. You're releasing a son. And I know that doesn't happen in our country anymore, but it wasn't that long ago that it happened all the time. So, for example, during the Vietnam War, fathers were sending away their sons. You got your draft card at age 17. And, and uh, right after your 18th birthday... You know, you had a bus ticket to get on a bus and to, to be taken to, to some military base. What does a father tell his son, knowing his son is going to end up in Vietnam, knowing his son is going to be exposed to massive amounts of drugs and, 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 and all the social things that went along with the physical risks of going off to war? Think about that in this context. This is the last chapter, the last portion of the letter that he's writing to them. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1. Let the love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them. Those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves also are in the body. Marriage is to be held in honor among all. 
and the marriage bed is to be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have, for he himself has said, I will be with you, I will never forsake you, so that we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid, what will man do to me? So these are the last portions of the last words that he's leaving with them. He starts out, let the love of the brethren continue. Why this? Let the love of the brethren continue. I was reading uh, 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 this book, uh, 50 People Whom All Christians Should Know by Warren Wiersbe. And one of the people that he wrote about was Eric Liddell. He was the person who was characterized in in, uh, uh, Chariots of Fire, that British uh, uh, runner who ended up, he was actually born in China on the mission field. He was British. He went to to, to the colleges in in, in England there, and then he he ran, ran in the Olympics, and then he went back into being a missionary in China. World, World War II broke out, and the Japanese occupied China, and the Japanese took all the foreign, all the missionaries, many of them from, from, uh, uh, um, from England, and put them in internment camps there in China. It was in that internment camp that it says that Eric Liddell really shone. He was really shining forth. Because the love of the brethren was failing. At first, you know, they were all taking care of each other. But then, as food became very sparse and the pressure started going on, they started suspecting each other and, and, and there was conflict between the brethren. When there is persecution coming, it is easy to start turning on one another. And that's why he's telling them that the love of the brethren continue. And it says of Eric Liddell that he was constantly giving out. He was constantly taking up his own food and giving it away to others. He says, let the love of the brethren continue. He says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Do not neglect to show hospitality. It doesn't say to brethren. It doesn't say to friends. It says to strangers. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. In the midst of your persecution, you may say, well, you know, I'm busy. I'm in school right now. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm just so busy. I don't have time to deal with these things. And he says, just be careful. The advice that I'm giving you is good for people who are entering into severe persecution. This is good advice also for when you're in school. For whatever state we are in, this is the basics. He's taking them back to the basics of Christian living. You are to love the brethren and you're to remember strangers and take care of them. You're to remember strangers. There was once a, a stranger came to our home as part of one of these lunches and, and uh, uh, nobody knew him and he, was, he, he, he appeared to not be that clean and things and people weren't nice to him. And, and one person in particular wasn't nice to him. And when I found out, I just felt so terrible that that had happened that I got through to him on a phone, phone call. I got through to him and I said, I am so sorry for what happened to you in my home. That never should have happened. And he was gracious. And again, I, I just couldn't get, get through with this. And then, so the next week I call him back. I said, can I pick you up anywhere in the city? I will come. I will get you. I'll bring you to the class. I'll bring you, and then I'll bring you back home afterward. I just want you to come. I feel so bad about the way you were treated. And he says, no, I, I, I don't think I'm going to come, but, but I, I, I appreciate your reaching out. Because I felt so bad that in my own home, a stranger comes, and he wasn't treated well. And it really hit me 
It says you are to be, show hospitality to strangers. I've read this story before. I want to read it again. It's from this book, Joshua. And, and before it begins, the writer actually tells of a, of a story from his own family. So the, here he's writing a true account of something happened with his own family. He said, our family of 12 children grew up during the Depression years. It was routine for people who wandered the streets to stop at our back door daily and ask for something to eat. My parents would always welcome them as members of the family, and my father would give them his place at the table and serve them. His answer to our questions as to why he was so nice to these shabby-looking strangers was that whatever we do to the poor, we do to God. God visits us in the form of the poor. That never meant anything to us until one night. There was a knock at the back door. It had been snowing all day long, and there was over a foot of snow on the ground. We were surprised anyone would be out on such a miserable night. When one of us opened the door, a man was standing there, thin, bearded, and shabbily dressed. Before the man could say anything, my father invited him in and seated him as usual. He offered the man a bowl of soup, but the man declined. Just a piece of bread and a cup of coffee will be fine, was all he said. When my father tried to get him to take something nourishing, the man said, No, save it for the children. He then proceeded to bless the little meal, and he ate it. One of my sisters asked him if he was a kidnapper. No, I love children, was all he said. When he finished, he asked God to bless us all, and then he took his cap and left, expressing his thanks as he walked out the back door. We all ran to the various windows to watch him go out the alley. When he didn't pass, we went back to the kitchen and we looked out the kitchen window onto the porch. No sign of him. We opened the back door and looked on the porch. He was nowhere to be seen. And there were no footprints in the snow either, on the porch or in the yard. He had just disappeared. Going back into the house, everyone wondered where he went. Father merely said, you should always learn to see God in the poor. Since then, we've realized that God has come to visit all of us at many times in various shapes and disguises. And that's exactly what it says here. It says that some have entertained angels without knowing it. Abraham entertained angels without knowing it. Then he realized it only afterward. We see several accounts of that in the scriptures. We are to show hospitality to strangers. God calls us to something different. As believers, the calling upon us is greater than the calling upon the world. God expects more of us. Jesus said, to whom much is given, much is expected. He's giving himself for us. He calls us to be different. <clears throat> Verse 3 he says, remember prisoners as though in prison with them. And those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves are also in the body. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them. He says you're to have this feeling that, that remember them. He's talking about people who are undergoing persecution. But still, I had a, a prison ministry when, we, when I was teaching at, for 10 years, 11 years I taught for the, at the University of South Carolina. And for, for 10 of those 11 years... We had a, a prison ministry, and I would be in a maximum security prison every Monday night. And I started corresponding with, with the prisoners, so there were several of them that wanted a pen pal. And, and uh, uh, it's not like I, I need something to do, but, but, uh, but still I would write to them. I was careful that every time they wrote me a letter, I would write back to them. 
And, and even though that I would see them on Monday night, it meant something to them to get this letter. And one of them particularly, he loved postcards. So whenever I would travel, and you know, for my job, I would travel all, all the time, and I'd always be in an airport, and I'd stop in at the gift shop and buy a postcard. And then when I got back, I'd fill it out and I'd mail it to him. And, and uh, so then long after we left South Carolina, 15 years after we left South Carolina, we were, he and I were still corresponding and I, I was still sending him postcards. And then one day I, I got a letter from a pastor. The pastor said, oh, this man you've been writing to, he's passed away. And, uh, and I was given all his personal effects. And he had a box. And in that box were these weekly letters that you had been sending to him. And he said, I have letters every week from what you had sent to him. It's just this box of postcards, these box of letters. He said, I just want you to know how much you meant to that man. The Lord tells us that we are to remember the prisoners as if in prison with them. And then he says, for those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves are in the body. He says, remember those who are ill-treated because you yourself are also in the body. Meaning that you're all about to undergo persecution. You're all about to be ill-treated. This window of safety that we live in, in this generation, in 2018, in Houston, Texas, this is not normal. This is not normal if you track humanity over time. If you track humanity over time, people were not free to worship. People were not free to gather. People were not free to do this without persecution. People would live in villages never knowing when there was going to be a raiding band of marauders that would come and take them all out. People never knew. We have enormous security. He says, he says I want you to remember that you are to remember this, those who are ill-treated. And one of the things that can happen is sometimes people will stand for the Lord and the world will come against them. You'll have a colleague that people will start coming against because of their faith, because of something they've done. And it is very easy to pull back from them and think, well, you know, they, they shouldn't have been so bold. They shouldn't have said what they said. The scriptures tell you, align yourself with that person. Align yourself with the person who is suffering. Align yourself with the person who is undergoing ill treatment. Don't be afraid to stand up with them and to say, no, what they were doing was right. This was right, and I stand right alongside because it doesn't take too many to stand alongside the person who's being ill-treated, to see the behavior of those who are treating them in that ill way change. It doesn't take many to stand with them, to say, no, I will stand with them. I used to tell my kids, I said, always stand up for those who are being picked on at school. If somebody's being picked on, you go and you stand right next to them and you say, this is my friend. Stand with them because it doesn't take many people to stand with them to keep this marauding band off, to keep these, these attackers off. So you remember, you stand with them. He says, because you yourself, you yourself are in the body. One day it's going to happen to you, and we will reap that which we sow. If we stand with others, others will stand with us. Verse 4. So again, remember, this is, this is the basics of Christian life. He is leaving them with this. In the midst of your persecution, you're not to forget to love the brethren. You're not to forget to take care 
of the strangers, to remember the prisoners, and, and, uh, uh, and to remember those who are ill-treated. Again, this is what he thinks of, which are the, the, the things that he wants them to remember in the midst of this. Verse 4, marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Marriage is to be held in honor among all. Why this? When he's just about to release them into this huge amount of persecution. Marriage is to be held in honor among all. Remember, marriage is a sacred thing and to be held in honor among all. And the marriage bed is to be undefiled. How much more explicit can the man be? The marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. It's not just adulterers. Our society is very good at judging adulterers, but it's also fornicators. He says you are to honor marriage. You are to honor marriage and you are to save yourself for marriage. You are to save yourself for the one whom you are going to marry. You are to save your body for the one whom you are going to marry. I can go and take out my neighbor's trash. I can help them rake their leaves or something. But there is something in my marriage, in my relationship in my marriage, that is unique and to be reserved only for my wife and my wife only for me. There is something sacred in that. And that is not to be spread around after marriage or before marriage. Because when you have a sexual relationship with somebody, you're giving a part of yourself to them. You're giving a part of yourself. It is a deep emotional bond. And when you spread this thing around to multiples of people, you're giving yourself away and you're losing of yourself. And it has a price, it has a cost. Emotionally, it has a tremendous cost. Physically, but also emotionally, it has a tremendous cost. And it's very hard, particularly for women, to back out of a relationship that has become sexual outside the bonds of marriage, to now back out of it, even knowing that that relationship is not healthy and not good. Because there is a bonding that takes place through that event. When you're giving yourself away, when it's in the bonds of marriage, that is an investment in the person that you're spending your life with. It is a good thing. The marriage bed is to be held in honor. They are going through persecution. How much more when you're just in college? Fornicators and adulterers, it says, God will judge. There is a judgment there. And it's not like he has to just grind our noses into it. What happens is just the natural things of life take place. The natural diseases of life and the natural emotional diseases of life take place when these things are violated. This is why I call you this day to repentance. I call you this day because our culture says something is okay when it's not. The marriage bed is to be held in honor among men. And I will continue to speak this and to continue to preach this regardless of what the culture says. Be afraid the day that I stop preaching the Word of God for the sake of the culture. Be afraid of that day. The marriage bed is to be held in honor. And it is to be undefiled. 
You think that when you get married, that then everything is going to be okay and you're just one with that person and none of this other stuff is going to go on. You talk to men, you talk to women who work for these oil companies and have to travel around the world, travel through the Middle East for months at a time without their spouse. I've had young men from this class travel around the world and they say, you wouldn't believe what my colleagues who are even Christians end up doing when they're away from their spouses for a few months. You think the urges go away once you're married? No, it's still very much there. But because of an honoring in marriage, you let the marriage bed be undefiled. The desires do not go away once you're in marriage. And there are times of separation that happen because of work, that happen because of, of, of things that occur, that happen sometimes because of health, where you don't get your, 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 your sexual desires met because the other party is ill for some reason. So does that give you freedom within marriage to then go and exploring around because you have a physical need? Of course not. Our culture understands that. But what our culture does not accept is that outside the bonds of marriage, there is also a restraining of ourselves and our own desires because we're saving that for marriage. That is the way God has ordained it. The marriage bed is to be undefiled because fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Both fornicators outside of marriage and adulterers in marriage, God will judge. There is a loss in this when we give this away. It was never meant to be that way. So I call you this day to repentance. Our culture says one thing. Now how about same-sex attractions? Well, I've never been same-sex attracted, but I have been opposite-sex attracted my whole life. You think that when you get married, you stop having attractions to other people? You think that on the day that I got married, that all my attractions to other women went away? No, it doesn't go away. Not at all. So I have to watch myself to make sure that my marriage bed is undefiled. I was opposite sex attracted my whole life. But it was to be exclusive now for one woman. And before I was married, I was a believer. As a believer, before I was married, I was opposite sex attracted all the time. So then am I free to do it because I'm not yet married? No, because I'm saving myself for the one whom I eventually will marry. Long before I ever knew her. This is the way it's supposed to be. The marriage bed is to be held in honor. It's something to honor. This is what the marriage bed is about. It's to be held in honor. We don't go with what the culture has. And you say, well, you know, I'm same-sex attracted, so what do I do? You contain yourself just like everybody, who's, everybody else who's opposite-sex attracted. Just because you're same-sex attracted doesn't mean you can go out and explore and do whatever you want. Doesn't give you license any more than when you're opposite-sex attracted that you can go out and do whatever you want. It's not about me anymore. We have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. It says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. It's not about me anymore. We've been bought with a price. It's not about me. It's not about my desires. 
You want to learn about homosexuality? This applies to believers. If you're an unbeliever, you're an entity unto yourself. But if you call yourself a believer, there are three passages in the New Testament. We don't even touch the Old Testament law because there's so much in there that's very difficult for us to understand. The New Testament has over 150 commandments that keep us quite busy. And there are three passages that talk about homosexuality in the New Testament. It's at the bottom there. Romans chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and 1 Timothy chapter 1. Those three passages. If you're a believer and you're wondering about homosexuality, you read those three passages and you interpret it for yourself. You interpret it for yourself and do what it says if you call yourself a believer. If you're an unbeliever, go do whatever you want. But if you're a believer and you want to submit to the apostles' teaching in the Word of God, that's what it says. Do it. Obey it. And there is great blessing in it. You don't. And fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. And His judgment, all He has to do is just lift His hands from us a little bit. And there's enough devious behavior in us to get us ourselves in all sorts of trouble. And as it says in Proverbs... Men will rebel against God and then blame Him. God, why did this happen to me? They do that all the time. We want to blame God when God has warned us. The marriage bed is to be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. He says, make sure your character is free from the love of money. Many of you will make a lot of money. How do I know that? Because I just know. I see Rice graduates all the time. You'll go out and you'll make a lot of money someday. That's not what he's talking about. He says you are to be free from the love of money. The scriptures say the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. We'll look at that. Well, what are you supposed to do when you're rich? What do rich people do? And, and people who feel that they're poor. Let me tell you, if anybody is in this class, they, you are not poor. You compare yourself to anyone else in the world. So there's always this image that, you know, I don't have much. Lots of people have stuff, but I'm poor. You are all rich. You are all entitled compared to everyone else in the world. Everyone in this class is entitled compared to everyone else in the world. In Acts chapter 4, verse 34 and 35, it says, They came and they laid all their money at the feet of the apostles, and the apostles distributed, distributed it to all who had need. That's what happened in the church in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 4. So is that the model for us? God never told them to do that. Acts chapter 4 is not an epistle, it is an historical book. It tells us what people did, and it shows us the outcome of what they did. Our instruction comes in the epistles. Acts chapter 4, in Jerusalem, the Jerusalem church, everyone who had everything, they came and they laid it at the apostles' feet, and the apostles distributed to all according to where there was need. And you know what the outcome of that was? Within a decade, that entire church became impoverished. Zero. Nothing. There are four portions, uh, 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 long portions. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 1 through 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1 through uh, verse 9. And, and then uh, 
chapter 8, 1 through 9, 15, and then Romans 15, verse 14 through 32. Those portions talk about Paul going to Gentile churches and raising money for the church in Jerusalem that had become impoverished. You want to see people lack money? You want to see a church lack money? Have all the rich people and everybody give their money away and have the church distribute it. That church is doomed for disaster. That's what happened to the Jerusalem church. Thank God for the Gentile church because it saved the church in Jerusalem. The donations that were going, Paul was going around and picking up donations from the Gentile churches to bless Jerusalem. So, so that's what he was doing. This is what happened. This is what, what happened when they gave everything away. So what's the instruction in the, book, in the epistles to instruct us? We'll turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. And you'll see the instruction to rich people. Because you're all going to be rich someday. Well, most of you. Verse 6, he says, But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. And skip down to verse 10. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Okay, the love of money has caused people to wander away from the faith. That means people who are believers have walked away from the faith because of a love for money. So he's saying, be careful with it. Remember, this is the instruction that's analogous to a father sending his 18-year-old son off to war. This is what he feels is really important. He says, but flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. You are to flee from the love of money. So it's not a passive thing. It is an active, willing, and intentional act to not fall in love with money. Well, how do you not fall in love with money? Well, he goes down to, to the exact instruction. Verse 17 of 1 Timothy chapter 6. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and to be ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Instruct them to be good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. That's the instruction. How do you flee? From falling in love with money. How do you do that? You always give away. You always give. But you don't give everything away or you're going to become impoverished and the church is going to become impoverished. And if you're really wealthy and you give a big donation to a Christian organization, you know what that can do? That can terribly corrupt the the organization. And I have seen it with my own eyes. Because Christian organizations are generally really bad at handling money. Churches in particular, pastors especially. Never get a pastor on your board of directors for, a, for a, a company. They don't know what they're doing when it comes to managing money, generally. There are some exceptions, but generally. If a church gets a huge donation that's way out of the bounds of what they normally get, it can often corrupt them. You want to be careful what you do with your money, but you learn to be generous. And that starts now. You say, well, when I get money, then I'll be generous. No, you lie to yourself. You are lying to yourself. You give now. You give now. You say, well, how much should I give? There is no prescribed number in the New Testament other than generously. There is a prescribed number in the Old Testament, 
And that was called 10%. That was a tithe. That was Old Testament stuff. But remember, that was Old Testament. God expects more of us because He's given us greater things. But that's not a bad place to start. What does a tithe mean? What does 10% mean? It means that if you have $10, you give away $1. That's what it means. You give away 10% of what you have. And you say, well, I don't have that much. That's exactly why you start doing it. So that you learn before you get too much because the more money you make, the harder it is to give it away. How can that be? I'm telling you, I've seen it in everyone's life and in my own life. It's harder the more money you make to give a tithe. And remember, tithe is just where you start, but don't give it all away. I don't want rich people to give all their money away. I want them to stay rich, to keep making lots of money so that they can keep on giving. So the instruction is, you instruct the rich people to, be, to share, to be generous, not to be attached to the money, to realize that this is just money and you teach them to be generous. The Bible says you should give such that your right hand doesn't know what your left hand is doing. How can this be? How can my right hand not know what my left hand is doing? Well, that can happen if you are doing it so much, you just forget. People will say, oh, you know, thank you for sending me that check. You're like, sent you a check? I don't even remember. You do it so much, you don't even remember. I have the great blessing of having a very generous wife. She gives away all sorts of stuff. She gives away food all the time. You, you could not imagine what our food bill is. I have tried to control her in that, and I've just given up. I just think it's better to just spend it on the food than spend it on a divorce lawyer. I just give up, all right? It's just not going to happen. You just, just let her go. And, and uh, just, she's just so generous with this stuff. She cooks it, she makes it, she just distributes it. I, I come to the refrigerator, sometimes it's empty. I'm like, what happened to all that food? She's just giving it all away. She's just giving it, it's just gone. One day, I'm telling you, I've told you before, I came around the corner, the whole refrigerator was gone. I said, Where, where's the refrigerator? She said, don't worry, we're getting another one. She said, somebody need it. I said, you mean like, like us? <laughs> but I praise God for her generosity because what it does is it brings great blessing upon the home. Great blessing upon the home. Learn to be generous. That's the admonition. Don't fall into the love of money. Learn to be generous. And that's how you stay free of it. Brothers and sisters, this is the basics of Christian life that he's sending us into the world to. Take hold of these things. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this day to be able to come and gather and worship, to be able to look into your word, unafraid of the authorities clamping down on us, unafraid of people coming in and, and attacking us for our faith. Thank you, Lord, for protecting us. Lord, I pray for these young men and women. Let them take hold of these things, that the love of the brethren would continue. Father, that they would be kind to strangers. Lord, that they would remember to take care of the infirmed and those in prison, those who are undergoing persecution because of their faith. Father, teach them. Teach them to remember that the marriage bed is should be undefiled, to hold marriage in honor. Father, I pray for those who are sexually active. 
Father, that this very day they would repent. Even if it's going to just disrupt their relationship with another individual, let it be disrupted, Lord. That they would repent and choose you first. Not about themselves, but it's about you. And Father, I pray that as they grow and get good jobs and become wealthy, that they would remember this message that they would always give and they'd start today with a tithe. That they would start to give and learn to be generous and learn to be kind. Father, for those here who do not know you, who have no power over sin, unable to control themselves because they have no power over sin, Father, I pray that this day they would be saved, that this very day they would say, Lord, forgive me because I am a sinner and come into my life. In the name of Jesus, amen.